go ahead and have a seat. Ushers can come up and collect the offering. That's another way we worship God. We worship Him with our money. If you're here and you're visiting us at Mountain View Sunnyside today, feel free to let that go by and let your gift to us be filling out that card to let us know that you are here. Uh, Pastor Ken is still on sabbatical, so they called me in from the bullpen over at Main Campus. My name is Tony Peterson. I'm the discipleship pastor at Main Campus, Mountain View. And uh, very quickly about me, I am married to a beautiful wife named Roxanna. I have two lovely, perfect children named Charlotte, who's two, and Alice, who is one month old. So I'm getting all the sleep, um, as you probably can imagine. More sleep than my wife, though. I'll, I'll have to say that. And so we've been going through the last few weeks, and will continue to go through, the book of Esther. And I think you would agree with me, it's a fascinating story. I mean, one of the most interesting stories, not only in the Bible, but in all of literature. It's got everything. It's fascinating for several reasons. It's a good yarn. It's just a good story. It's got all the elements of a good story that you would want. It's got betrayal. There's tension. There are cliffhangers. There's sex and violence. Right? All the things you would associate with an interesting story, they're there in the book of Esther. It's also interesting because you may have noticed it does not ever mention the word God, ever. God is behind this whole story, that is true, but his name is never once mentioned in this book that is in the Bible, which gives some people a little bit of pause and makes it, to me, all the more interesting. It's also fascinating because of how compelling it is to us, how true to our lives, how true to our experience this story written many, many, many years ago, is. If you look just in the, what we've gone over thus far alone, we, we've read about King Xerxes deposing of Queen Vashti in a way that's eerily reminiscent of a lot of the Me Too scandals that we've seen around uh, our country and the misogyny we've seen and the abuse of power that we've seen. is eerily reminiscent. We've seen political advisors who are only looking out for themselves. When have we ever seen that in our country's history? Uh, We've seen believers like Esther and Mordecai compromise their beliefs and their character in order to get by, to get ahead, or to protect themselves. Surely a temptation for all of us in our culture today. It's relevant. I mean, turn this thing into a novel. It's on every bestseller list. And today's passage is no exception. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 2. We're going to read a pretty decent chunk of Scripture together. We're going to read from verse 21 in chapter 2 to the end of the chapter, and then read all of chapter 3, all 15 verses. So have your Bibles, open that up there, and we'll read together. So in verse 21, chapter 2, it says, One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles. 
making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence, the lots were called Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. Bless you. So on April 17, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces, and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on, the same, on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7 of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa fell into confusion. So there's a lot going on there in that passage. But I think one of the first things that we notice, that we see in this passage, is that that first point in your outline. Good deeds don't necessarily guarantee good results. The start of this section, it opens up with Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. He overhears two of the palace guards plotting an assassination. And you may think, boy, that's pretty lucky for Mordecai. He's sitting under some random gate, and two, frankly, idiots are just whispering out loud recklessly about their plans to kill the king. That's pretty lucky for him. It's not quite that way in the story. The king's gate in Persia, in this, in this language, in this area, is an idiom, uh, an expression referring to a large building at the entrance of the palace where uh, legal matters and 
business matters were taken care of, where people plotted various things. So it makes perfect sense that if you're going to plot something like the assassination of the king, this is where you're going to do it. This is where you meet and talk about it. And it would make sense that Mordecai, since he was appointed as a palace official earlier in the chapter, probably thanks to Esther's influence, that he would would be there and be able to hear about it. So this is far more heroic on his part. He didn't just luck into it. He heard about it and then took action to try to stop it. Notice how shrewd and wise he is, too. He doesn't go to another palace official who may be in cahoots with those two plotters. He goes to Queen Esther, who takes it directly to the king, where he can punish those people who are trying to kill him. And Mordecai, in effect, saves the king. I mean, a good deed if there ever was one. And so those of us reading this book would expect, that's how chapter 2 ends. We would expect that chapter 3 would open then with Mordecai being honored, with Mordecai being promoted. And instead, in a cruel twist, we see not Mordecai, but Haman is the one who's promoted. Haman is the one who's honored above everyone else in the kingdom outside of Xerxes, the second most powerful person in the empire. It's evident that for Mordecai, good deeds Uh, don't guarantee good results. And that seems pretty true to life to me today. That we do good things does not guarantee that good things are going to follow after us. For some of you, perhaps the, the literal shape of the story feels familiar to you. Perhaps you feel like in your workplace or on in your school or on your team or within your family that you've done well. You've done good deeds, deserving of some kind of honor, some kind of recognition, and yet you've been repeatedly passed over and over and over. You feel like Mordecai in this instance. Good deeds deeds don't automatically guarantee good results. God isn't, you know, up in the heavens weighing our every action, like, oh, you did a good thing? Here is a blessing. You did something bad, here is punishment. And that's not how God works. And thankfully, at least for my sake, I know that if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't have the awesome family and the great job that I have today. I know that if God gave me what I deserved, my beloved Green Bay Packers would probably still have Mike McCarthy as their head coach. And we would continue to waste the prime of Aaron Rodgers, perhaps the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. So it's... I'm lucky, I'm blessed that the Lord has not given me what I deserve. Because good, as we see in this story, we see in our lives, good deeds don't guarantee good results. But not only is is Mordecai's loyalty ignored, his good deed, not only is it ignored, but when he refuses to bow before Haman, he and the rest of the Jewish people in the empire are sentenced to death. And that's because not only do good deeds not guarantee good results, but the gospel itself is offensive to the world. Now, why did Mordecai refuse to kneel? It's hard to say. It doesn't explicitly say in this passage why he refused to kneel. Some commentators believe that he just plain despised Haman's person, that he was a despicable person, or that he was angry that he was the one who was passed over for honor and recognition. And, you know, Mordecai's human, and I can see myself responding in a similar way, out of bitterness toward the situation and refusing to kneel. But it's also implicit in the story that Mordecai refused to kneel, at least partly because he was a Jew. I mean, he, when they asked him, why aren't you kneeling? He said at one point, I am a Jew. 
And for Haman, this is offensive. This is what sets Haman off more than anything else, not the kneeling. It's that he was Jewish. It was offensive to Haman. And just as Judaism was offensive to some in Persia in the 5th century BC, around the time this took place, so is today Christianity, the gospel, offensive to our world, the world we live in today. For many people, perhaps even some of you here today, in which case I'm glad that you're here, for many the gospel itself is exclusive, or it's too restrictive of our behavior, or it uh, needlessly uh, disputes modern science, doesn't take it seriously, or that Christianity is is the cause of so much suffering and harm over our world's history. That's, not, that's even before we get into some of the hot-button social and cultural issues that are always in, our, in the news that we read and watch everywhere. There's a lot of objections. It's offensive to a lot of people. And there are many good answers to a lot of these concerns and questions and doubts. In fact, if you have a doubt, if you have a concern about Christianity, odds are someone else has had that same doubt or concern. And odds are that someone else has written about it and given some kind of answer. So we don't have time to get into a lot of these concerns today. But if you have doubts, if you have concerns, it does no good to hide them or just push them down or try to just forget about them. We should confront those things and think about them and talk about them with other people. And I'm going to be here after the service. If you want to talk to me about any of those things, I'd love to chat with you uh, about, about the gospel in that way. But say we had all the greatest answers for every single concern. We had just, boom, right off the bat, you have a question, I got an answer. And it's perfect, it settles everything. If we had that, the gospel would still be offensive to the world. It would still be offensive to the world. Because the good news itself is, to us, offensive. I mean, we put it starkly. You aren't good enough. Right? That's in the gospel. You aren't good enough. I am not good enough. It's offensive. We are lacking in a very important way. We are conceived in sin. We are totally depraved. We need a Savior. And that Savior is not another person who can come save us. That Savior is God, but also not God in the heavens, but God who becomes human. It could be offensive to some people. And this God who becomes human, who saves us, doesn't save us by overthrowing kingdoms. He saves us by counterintuitively, offensively dying. And that we follow this God who becomes human, who is our Savior, not by following all these rules, but by having faith in him and letting him change us. We have nothing to offer him, but he changes us so that we can then do good. This gospel is counter to everything that our world teaches. It's offensive to the world. And yet, as Jesus would say, for those with ears to hear, it is the good news of salvation. It's the good news of redemption. It's the good news of holiness in Jesus Christ. The gospel, though, is offensive to the world. But just as that is the case, as we see in this passage, racism is offensive to the gospel. Racism is offensive to the gospel. I wish I could say that racism is just a thing of the past, just a story like that which we read in this book of Haman's racism toward the Jews? I think we know that's not the case. There's a recent opinion survey uh, that said nearly three out of every four Americans believe that racism is still a serious problem in our country. And I think our experience um, justifies 
that belief. If you look at, um, we, we see racism in certain ways, but the way African Americans are treated within our criminal justice system. Not in necessarily isolated incidents, but on the whole, black people receive harsher punishments and, more, and are arrested more often than white people for committing the same exact crimes. That is a legacy in some ways of racism and white supremacy within our society. And to take another group of people at Harvard, that August institution, one of our top colleges in the country, it has come out that they have basically racistly kept Asians who meet all the criteria, meet all the requirements to become students of Harvard, they have been kept out of Harvard at a far greater rate than other uh, ethnicities and other peoples. That's racist. We see, if you've been following along in the news, you may have seen there have been several politicians in several places around our country who have gotten in political trouble for appearing at some point in their lives in blackface. And if you don't know what that is or, or why it's offensive, blackface very quickly is basically the putting of something on your skin uh, to make it appear black. Uh, this was the most popular form of entertainment in America in the 1800s. It was called minstrelsy or minstrel shows. And the purpose of it was to make black people look so ridiculous that it would make them make it seem like they weren't capable of being full citizens in our democracy. So it pushed racist stereotypes like black people as lusting after people all the time or as being dumb or not advanced uh, for the amusement of white people and also to keep them at a lower rung of society. That's why blackface doing this is so offensive. And when we still see it today, is, as it's, it's evidence that this is something we're still dealing with as a people. But even beyond racism broadly, we see even the racism that is uh, depicted here in the story of anti-Semitism, that is still a thing of, sorry about that, of, uh, that we're currently living through. Thankfully, in the book of Esther, the genocide that Haman was attempting to commit against the Jewish people failed. But in some of our lifetimes, we saw in the 1930s and 1940s Nazi Germany exterminate, kill, as Haman tried to do, kill, slaughter, and destroy six million Jews, young and old, women and children. And this isn't even merely a thing of 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago. According to public opinion surveys, about a third of Americans underestimate the number of people who perished in the Holocaust. A third of Americans say that number was two million or less rather than the six million that ultimately died in the Holocaust, who were Jews that died in the Holocaust. And a quarter of my generation of millennials haven't even heard of the Holocaust. Couldn't tell you what it is. And when we forget the Holocaust, or we misrepresent it, or we underestimate its effects, or we misunderstand its implications, that could lead to more things like that. And it can lead to the spread of anti-Semitism, which we see in our world today, especially in Europe, but even in America, in the most recent campaign for president in our country in 2016, there were some journalists who were Jewish who wrote critical things about Donald Trump when he was running for president, and neo-Nazis, members of the alt-right, and other people of the far right harassed them and sent them uh, threats and messages saying that they should, quote, be gassed in reference to the Holocaust. 
But this is, lest you think this is just a province of the right, of the, of the far right in our culture, in the far left, members of the far left in American politics use anti-Semitic tropes like uh, saying that, oh, Jews control all the money or Jews control all the media influence in our society. They use these things to argue against the existence of a state for Jewish people, like the state of Israel. We still see this all around us in our culture, in our society. And we have to be as clear as we possibly can be. Racism, in all its forms, is offensive to God. And it's offensive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Bible teaches that all people, all people, all human beings are made in the image of God. And it says in Acts 17.26 that from one man, from Adam, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. We are all related. There is no other for us to despise. As Revelations 5.9 says, that Christ's death for our sins ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Heaven will be diverse. Because racism and anti-Semitism are opposed to the gospel, we who are followers of Jesus Christ must be opposed to racism and anti-Semitism in all its forms. It's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to put to death those feelings of prejudice that live within us. It's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to influence other people to put those things to death in their own hearts. And it's our responsibility as Christians to work to alleviate the awful awful effects of racism in our world. It's our responsibility because it is offensive. It's offensive to God. It's offensive to the gospel. The good news is that the gospel also offers a remedy. And this last point is that our God, despite our circumstances, has not forgotten us. As Pastor Greg said last week. So chapter 3, this chapter we've been going through, ends in a really, you know, tense way. It's quite the cliffhanger. We see the last passage, Haman and Xerxes yucking it up, relaxing, drinking. We see the citizens of Susa being kind of confused, like why is this happening? And then off the page, we can think of the Jewish people, how they're experiencing such fear and dread at their impending doom. And not only are they fearing and dreading what's to come, their their likely slaughter at the hands of Haman and others, but also note what happens in verse 12 in chapter 3. In verse 12, it says that the the decree of Haman's to kill all the Jews was handed down on April 17. And in my Bible, there's an asterisk. So I go down to the footnote for that asterisk, and it says, Hebrew, on the 13th day of the first month, of the ancient Hebrew lunar calendar. On the 13th day of the first month is when this decree was handed down. Well, on the 14th day of the first month, the next day, the Jewish people would celebrate Passover, which is the annual festival celebrating and commemorating their deliverance out of slavery from Egypt when Moses led them out of Egypt. So during this time when they're supposed to celebrate deliverance from destruction, they're now forced to ponder their own impending destruction, from which there is seemingly no deliverance. No deliverance. No hope. So we can get to this part of the story and super quickly move on to, oh, well, everything gets okay, they're saved, and everything ends up fine. But I want to linger for a little bit on just what they're feeling at this moment. 
What are they feeling? Do they feel forgotten? Are they wondering where God is in this circumstance? They're fearing. They're dreading. You know, luckily, I don't think any of us have been in a situation quite this dire, but we've all experienced sufferings of all kinds. Hurts, pains, deep wounds. How have you felt in those moments? Have you felt forgotten? Have you felt abandoned? Have you questioned what was going on? It's a natural response. 2,000 years ago, the world was in a similar and yet on an even far greater scale situation. There was a man, it was said there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who could do miracles, who could do the miraculous. He could make bread to feed 5,000 and fish to feed 5,000 out of just a couple pieces. He could give sight to the blind. He could raise the dead. It was said that he could even forgive people of sin. Crowds gathered around him, and he had 12 disciples who were with him at every moment. It was thought that he was the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would come to save and redeem us all. And then he died. And then he died. The government condemned him based on trumped-up charges from his enemies coming from one of his own who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And he died in the most humiliating, excruciating way possible. Nailed to a cross on top of a hill for everyone to see in between two criminals. He was alone, abandoned. His, his closest followers left him as soon as he experienced any kind of opposition. He was naked. Roman soldiers cast lots for his clothing. He was seemingly utterly powerless hanging lifeless from a piece of wood. And before we move on from Good Friday to the good news of Easter Sunday, how did the disciples feel in that moment? Did they feel abandoned? Did they feel forgotten? Did they feel alone? They were in need of a deliverer. The Jews in Persia were in need of a deliverer, and you keep reading in this passage, you will see that that deliverer comes in the form of Esther. But we also need a deliverer. For we stand, just like the Jews in this passage, condemned to death. All of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Without a deliverer, we have no hope. And yet we can have hope because Jesus Christ is that deliverer. On Good Friday, he went to the cross, dying in our place, the death we deserve to die for our sins. And on Easter Sunday, he rose again in power from the grave, defeating, triumphing over sin, defeating death, defeating the devil for all time, so that we, when we are in him, we also can triumph over sin. We also, in Christ, can triumph ultimately over death. And we also in Christ can triumph ultimately over the devil. We can know that God has not forgotten us, even when we have forgotten him. Because Jesus Christ, God the Son, was forgotten on the cross. So that we would be remembered forever. So that we could be with God forever. In Jesus Christ is where there is hope, is where there is security, is where there is salvation. 
In Ephesians 2, it says this, verses 14 to 16, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the wall of hostility that exists between us and God is broken down forever. We can have access to God. We can be reconciled to him. We can be saved, redeemed, transformed, and live with him forever. And in the same way, the dividing wall of hostility between us and other groups in the form of racism and prejudice and all manner of other evil things is broken down in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't exist anymore because Jesus Christ has already died for that. And in his death on the cross, he has made us one. And that's the good news of Jesus.